end up, depending on what Jonathan says to me later on, as a, a bit of a theme uh, uh, throughout these next uh, two or three, uh, uh, two or three months. Um, but that's fine because there's so much to to think about prayer and understand about it and, and learn about. Um, and particularly at this time that we're in as a church, um, embarking on really uh, exploring further God's uh, vision, God's plans for this. If prayer is not the forefront, the beginning, middle and end of everything we do, then we're not going to succeed because everything has to be uh, uh, grounded in prayer and to ensure that what we're doing is in accordance with, with God's will. And I, I do feel that tonight uh, it's quite an awesome task because I'm faced by such an array of people who are um, real prayer warriors who over many, many years have been faithful, faithful prayers. And who am I to tell you about, uh, uh, about prayer? So I'm going to take my inspiration from Jesus and what he said we should do about prayer. Um, uh, and we're going to be exploring uh, some of that as uh, Jesus, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, and this will come through again uh, later in our morning series, uh, Jesus taught his disciples, taught the people he was speaking to about how they should pray. But to start with, I want to focus a little bit about who God is. And I came uh, across uh, uh, a recording. It's, it's probably quite a famous one. It's taken from a much bigger sermon uh, by uh, S.M. Lockridge. And uh, I'm sure you'll be very familiar with the, the That's My King um, thing. But this is a, a slightly different uh, bit of that sermon um, that uh, talks about, well, who God is. And uh, he was challenging some of the challenges that were being made about God and uh, how kind of back in the 60s there was uh, um, people who said, oh, God's dead now, right? Not relevant anymore. Um, you know, and then people starting to ask the question, well, okay, if, uh, if he is there, who created him? Who made him? Where did he come from? And all this kind of stuff. So listen to this um, and uh, hear what he has to say. Hopefully the, the sound is clear enough. Thanks, Will. You remember back during the 60s, the offbeat theologians romped around in their subsurface playpens and emerged and announced that God was dead. Now that shouldn't have been surprising to us because the Bible has informed us that the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And when I first heard that absurd statement, it made me want to ask some stupid and senseless questions, like, who assassinated God? What coroner was called? Who signed his death certificate? Who was so well acquainted with the one pronounced dead that he could identify the deceased? In what obituary column did you find his name? And why was I not notified? I'm a member of the family. God is spirit. He does not die by pronouncement. He does not die by assassination. He does not die by denial. He just does not die. He's as real today as he was to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. If you'll trust him, he will be as 
true to you as he was to Abram when Abram was called to go out not knowing whether he went. If you'll trust him, he will be as evident to you as he was to Moses when God manifested himself in a burning bush. Now, when they couldn't get anywhere with the God is dead idea, in these 70s, one of the top theological questions is, where did God come from? Now, the primary purpose of God in creation was to prepare moral beings spiritually and intellectually capable of worshiping him. When heaven and earth were yet unmade, when there was empty blackness and void formlessness, and darkness was on the face of the deep, when time was yet unknown, thou in thy bliss and majesty did live and love alone. He called light out of darkness, he called cosmos out of chaos, he called order out of confusion, but the question still clamors for an answer. Where did God come from? The answer is he came from nowhere. Now that's theologically correct and it's biblically sound. For Habakkuk said, I saw him when he left the hills of Teman, the Holy One from Mount Perrin. And Teman simply means nothing or nowhere, so he came from nowhere. I made that statement in Detroit some time ago, and a man talked with me after the service, and he said, Preacher, let's be reasonable about this thing. You up there talking about God came from nowhere. That doesn't make sense. Let's be reasonable about it. I said, All right, if you just want to be reasonable about it, the reason God came from nowhere is there wasn't anywhere for him to come from. <laughs> And coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing. And the reason he stood on nothing, there was nowhere for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach and caught something when there was nothing to catch and hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. Now, you'll find that in Job 26 and 7, that he hung this world on nothing. And standing on nothing, he took the hammer of his own will, and he struck the anvil of his omnipotence, and sparks flew therefrom. And he caught them on the tips of his fingers and flung them out into space and bedecked the heavens with stars. And nobody said a word. The reason nobody said anything, there wasn't anybody there to say anything. So God himself said, that's good. And God has given Christ a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Fantastic. I thought it was good just to remember who is this God that we pray to. The God who was before all things, who through all things uh, came into being.
That's the God that we pray to. What is prayer? Any thoughts, ideas? Yep, Sarah. Talking to God, fantastic. Anything? Listening to him? Yep. Anything else? Relationship. Yeah. I think that's really important. We don't just kind of talk at him. (laughs) Um, You know, we're uh, talking with him. It is about building that relationship. Why do we pray apart from to build a relationship? But let's look at some of the specifics. Why is it that we pray? Mm -hmm. To get our perspective right. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, like the Lord's prayers to our Father who art in heaven, so you start with God and then you work. Okay. Yep. Maybe we pray to say we're sorry about things, confess the things that we've done. Maybe we pray to ask him to intervene in certain situations. You know, Jesus was a fantastic example of why we should pray. The times, if you look, and if you just want to kind of flick through Luke, Luke's a great gospel for uh, um, you know examples of where Jesus was praying. He, he prayed before performing miracles, right? Before raising Lazarus from the dead, he prayed to God. He prayed before food. Um, he gave uh, um, blessings uh, uh, for the food. He prayed before uh, feeding the 5,000. He prayed before tough decisions. So he prayed before choosing his disciples. He prayed for other people, that uh, um, God would be glorified through them. He prayed before he taught people. So before he um, uh, taught in the, in the temple, before um, you know, he spoke. And whilst Jesus wouldn't pray to confess his sins because he was sinless, he prayed on behalf of others. So as he hung on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So forgiveness is a key part of that pattern that Jesus showed Jesus prayed at busy times. We hear that he took time out. He went off to quiet places to be with his father. He prayed morning and he prayed at evening. He prayed at specific set times when he went up to the temple when there would be people praying. So Jesus had a a very well-structured, a habitual life cycle of prayer. And you know, sometimes we take it very much for granted, don't we, prayer? So we say words, I'm sure we don't mean it, but we'll just have a time of prayer. Just? Really? You know, we'll uh, spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Jesus' pattern of prayer was habitual, was deep, was meaningful. So how are we supposed to pray? I said we would use uh, Jesus' instructions because uh, there's none better than that. So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and beginning at verse 5.
And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because there are many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. We're going to sing again as we just uh, think on those words and the song we're going to sing is what a friend we have in Jesus that speaks very much about how we should use our relationship with Jesus to bring everything that troubles us everything that's on our mind and how if we don't use that wonderful gift of prayer uh, you know do we really realize the things that we're giving up I entitled uh, uh, tonight's um, talk, The Miracle of Prayer. And I don't know if you've ever thought that prayer is a really miraculous thing in so many ways. Um, what is a miracle? What do, what do we understand by a miracle? Supernatural happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So... Um, Dictionary says, a miracle is an event not explicable by natural or scientific laws. Such an event may be attributed to a supernatural being, magic, a miracle worker, a saint, or a religious leader. I'm not quite sure about the last ones, right? Um, however, a miracle may be performed by somebody enabled by God. Right? But a miracle is something that is completely out of our normal expectation and experience. Yep. Can't be explained. And surely, when we pray, we're praying, expecting that God will do something supernatural. Yeah? Otherwise, what's the point of praying? It becomes, as Jesus was saying, almost a bit of a babbling. Yeah? It's almost like, you know, wearing your lucky football socks. Right? Because you think that in doing that you're going to win the football match. It makes absolutely no difference, right? But you feel better about it. We should approach prayer expecting God to do incredible things. And I wonder, I, and I'm speaking to myself in this, how much that really is the case. Whether we kind of just get into a habit of praying certain things. I'm sure you have prayed the Lord, Lord's Prayer many times, yeah? 
And to my own shame, I have to confess, sometimes you just say it by rote. Yeah? The words just kind of trip off. But I wanted to spend a, a little bit of time really digging into the, the depths of the miraculous nature of this prayer that Jesus used as an example of how we should pray. So the first thing is that Jesus said, when we pray, we should go somewhere quiet. Yeah? Now, how do you pray? Do you tend to pray quietly, locked away? Do you pray in prayer meetings? Pray publicly in church? Jesus said, shut yourself away. And this is the first miracle, I think, in this whole prayer. Did you twig what it said? <clears throat> it said in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Do you get what that means? Right? Before you even say anything, before you even think anything, God knows what you need. You can pray silently in your own heads and God hears. All the millions of people in the world, God hears and knows what they're thinking and praying. I find that incredible and incredibly scary. God knows each of our thoughts and our desires, our, our concerns, our hopes, our dreams at all times. He knows when we start to say, oh, I wish the uh, preacher would get on with it. He knows when we're excited. He knows when we're bored to tears. He knows when we're thinking things that we shouldn't think. <sighs> that is miraculous. It just blows me away that God could want such an intimate relationship with us that he knows our very thoughts and is concerned about every feeling. Amazing. The next thing that I find absolutely miraculous... Oh, and by the way, one, one other uh, thought. There's a uh, <coughs> excuse me, passage in First Thessalonians... Um, that says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. I've often wondered, how on earth can you pray continuously? But actually, the very fact that God can know all our thoughts, all our deeds, if we have that relationship with him, in effect, is that not praying continuously? And... That tells us so much about what our attitude to our life should be, that our thoughts, our actions, our deeds, uh, everything we do and say should, in a sense, be like a prayer to God because he hears it all, he knows it all. Incredible. But next thing I was going to say, who do we pray to? What does Jesus say? Our Father. Pray to your Father in heaven. That must have been a huge culture shock.
to those that were hearing this. How dare this person call God their father? And in fact, um, later on in, in other examples, Jesus goes even further. And the Aramaic word that he uses for father is Abba. Which the best equivalent is dad or daddy. So Jesus says, when you pray to God, say, Daddy, how familiar is that? It's just incredible. It's miraculous that we, who are fallen beings, could dare to say to Almighty God, who created everything, who hung the world on nothing, can dare to call him Dad. Amazing. But... He says, say, Daddy, holy is your name, hoed is your name. There's this kind of balance, isn't there? On one side, we're kind of said to call him, call him Dad, and on the other, it's holy is your name. Do we understand what is meant by holy? I think we've really forgotten what holy really means. You know, when Isaiah uh, encountered the presence of God in the temple, he could only fall on his face because of the sheer holiness of God. When Moses encountered God, God had to cover himself. Moses had to look away. Moses' face was shining even though he encountered a a kind of veiled uh, um, encounter with, with God. God is so holy, so pure, and yet, He wants us to call him Daddy. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Do you not find it incredible that um, we in prayer can engage with God in heaven? Now, I don't know what your view of heaven is. What, you know, when, when we say our Father in heaven, what do you think about? I, I, I'm guessing that most people have a view of God sitting somewhere up in a, a, an incredible place. Yeah. Bright, uh, you know, throne with uh, seraphim and cherubim around it and angels uh, worshipping. I imagine that's what most of us think about heaven as. Yeah. But I, <laughs> Whilst there's definitely pictures in the Bible that are like that, actually I think that heaven is more a kind of... Heaven is kind of all around. Yeah. And why do I say that? Because the Bible says you can go nowhere to escape the presence of God. Right? You can go to the highest mountain, you can go to the deepest trench in the deepest sea, you can run as far as you want to the east, you can run as far as you want to the west, and you can never escape the presence of God. So, for me, in our engagement with our God in heaven, we're just engaging with the heavenly realm. Yeah? It's not like we're talking with a remote person up on a cloud on, on a throne. We're talking to somebody who's right with us, who we can never escape from. That's the next miraculous thing for me. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. 
your kingdom come. What does this mean? Your kingdom come. I have to say there's some differences of opinion about the interpretation of this. I have one particular view, but I'll share two views. I even looked up in several versions of the Bible, and some have your kingdom come full stop. And some have your kingdom come comma, your will be done. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, what do we mean? What is God's kingdom? His rule. Is God's kingdom going to come on this earth? There's the cop-out answer. Fantastic. Yes and no. Yeah? This is where the disagreement is, right? So, um, you know, some people say, you know, God's kingdom is all about the, the now but not yet, you know, the, the, the here but still to come kind of thing. So I, on the two extremes, you've got, well, God's kingdom is only going to come when Jesus returns. Yeah? And there's others that actually, as God's representatives, as his disciples on earth, we're all about building his kingdom here on earth. Yeah? Those are two extremes, yeah, Jonathan? I have to admit, I'm more at this end of the spectrum. You're in the middle, are you? On the fence. It's an uncomfortable place to be. (laughs) So, so, so I'm not discounting the fact that we have a responsibility to advance God's kingdom. Yeah? But if we are praying, expecting God's future kingdom to come here on earth, in limb, in the place we are, then we're praying for the wrong thing, I think. That's my interpretation. Right? Really, when we're praying, your kingdom come, this is a bold prayer because I think it's we want Jesus, you to return to establish your kingdom properly, your eternal kingdom. And that is a bold and miraculous prayer. It's a prayer that says we want Jesus, you to overturn all the stuff that is wrong with this world. We want you to come back and claim your rightful place as ruler in this, in this world. Whose kingdom is the world now? It's the devil's, isn't it? Yeah, we're told that in his word. Yeah, Satan is the ruler of this world. And that will not change until Jesus returns again. So if we think, um, you know, your kingdom come means that we're going to have God's kingdom established here, think again, in my opinion. You could quite happily take the other extreme. Yes, Sarah. Sorry? Well, they believe some other things as well that that make it very iffy, right? But, you know, I I don't believe that, uh, and I'm very happy to have a a discussion with with people afterwards, but, uh, you know, I I don't think that Jesus says, in fact, he said his very words are, my kingdom is not of this earth. Yeah? Now, sitting on the fence a little bit more, (laughs) um, we are called absolutely to be salt and light to um, live out, if you like, God's kingdom. But in doing that, we will always be subject to sin, to disease, to suffering. It will not be the same as God's kingdom. 
his eternal kingdom. So in praying that thy kingdom come, do we really mean that, well, ultimately, we want Jesus to come again? If, if, that's, if that's not the case, I guess there's a number of reasons why we wouldn't pray that prayer. And I've had conversations with people about this. Either people are not ready yet. And actually that's fair. Because God wants nobody to be lost. And when his kingdom comes, that's kind of it, isn't it? So it's our job to see that as many people come into the kingdom as possible before Jesus does return. I've had conversations with some people to say, I don't want Jesus to come back just yet because I'm enjoying my life too much. I find that a bit strange. You know, notwithstanding the first thing uh, that I said about, you know, wanting to save people and as many people as possible, I can't wait for Jesus to come again. Because all that we suffer now in this world is just, it's just horrible, isn't it? Yeah, we might have a good time and enjoy, but there's so much in this world that is not right. And how God must cry for those that are, are suffering injustice, poverty, hunger, that are subject to the sex slave trade, that are subject to abuse, how that must hurt God when we pray thy kingdom come we're praying for God to put all that right again and absolutely we have a job to do in helping bring justice love mercy and to act humbly Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. This definitely is the same part of one sentence, (laughs) no matter which version you uh, look at. What do we really mean when we pray, thy will be done? This is another miraculous part of the prayer. Somehow we're praying for God's holy righteous will to be executed in the same way on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking for that supernatural um, outworking. It's not the norm. Earth is not the same as heaven, is it? Far from it. We are fallen people. We live in a fallen world subject to evil subject to the whole thing being spoiled but in what ways do we want God's will to be done on this earth the first step for me is being prepared to be subject to his will and that means are we listening to what God wants us to do Yeah, we talked about prayer being a, a, a listening to him you know, are we prepared to say, God, I'll do whatever you want? This is a tough, tough prayer. But Jesus prayed it, didn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
You know, he said, if it's, if it's possible, would you take away this suffering from me? But not my will, not what I want, but what you want, Father. Even to death, Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. I wonder, do we have that same willingness to subject ourselves to God's will, to listen to what he has to say? It's a tough ask, and I know from my uh, personal experience, there's times when I have uh, um, you know, kicked against that and said, well, that's not really what I want to do, God. I'm sure you're not the same. So, in praying that, thy will be done, it's not just something that can trip off the tongue. We have to be prepared to follow God's will. Give us today our daily bread. Why is this miraculous? So first of all, it's a prayer acknowledging that God is the provider of all things. Everything we have comes from God. Do you accept that? Do you believe that? Whether you care to think about it or not, everything, every penny we have, uh, every brick in our houses, um, every cell in our bodies belongs to God. It's all his. Just on loan to us. God is the great provider. He created it all out of nothing. Nothing has been created except that which was created by him. So, give us today our daily bread has to be an acknowledgement that God is the provider of all things. It's also a huge call to live by faith, right? It's not, God, give me a bakery so that I've got plenty to live on, right, for my whole life. It's give me today what I need. Tomorrow will look after itself. Give me what I need right now. Don't let me build up things and, you know, create storehouses and what have you um, that mean I don't need to live by faith. This is a tough prayer, isn't it? Because we're all kind of shaped or trained, taught to to be ready, aren't we? Be prepared. Right? Make sure you've got enough. The whole kind of pension system is is based around store up stuff ready for when uh, for when you retire, so you've got enough for a comfortable living. Jesus is saying here we need to pray to be completely dependent on God. Now that doesn't mean be foolhardy. Right? I'm not suggesting that for a minute. It doesn't mean give everything away and just stand and don't do anything. Right? He calls us to be good stewards of what we have. But what he's saying is don't put your trust in that stuff. Put your trust in me because I am your faithful father. You know, daily bread, I think, is a pretty alien concept to us because I guess not... Uh, uh, none of us are struggling to know where we're going to ne- get our next meal from. And even if we were, you know, there are food banks available. <laughs> there is the welfare state that, that would catch us. Daily bread, in that context, doesn't mean much. We need to think through, well, what does that mean in terms of our whole attitude to life? Are we utterly dependent 
on God our Father. Then forgive us our debts or sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is the only bit of the prayer where there's a condition attached to it. We notice that. Right? Everything else is a request or an acknowledgement, but here there's a consequence if we don't forgive others' sins. So this is all about the attitude of our hearts as we approach God in prayer. And as we said right at the start, God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts, everything about us. So we can't kid him if we're coming um, with unforgiven sin. How often do we pray, or when we pray, do we check to see if we're holding any grudges against anybody? If there's unconfessed uh, sin in our lives? You know, we cannot have an intimate relationship with God if we have sin in our lives. Our Father who art in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name. We can't expect to call him Dad if we've got sin in our lives. So we need to confess. But the miraculous thing is that through Jesus, God's prepared to forgive us our sins. That we can come to him and say, forgive me for doing this. How incredible is that? Absolutely miraculous. But if you don't turn from a sin, from your sin, you can't pray that rest of the prayer, which we'll come on to in a minute. You can't have that intimacy with God. You can't call him holy. You can't want his kingdom to come. Then lead us not into temptation. <clears throat> this is a bit of a contentious verse. I don't know if you've heard recently, but the, uh, the Pope wants to change the words of this. Because he says it smacks too much of God tempting us. And actually that's not how it should be. And I have some sympathy with it, but I don't think that's the meaning of what Jesus is really saying here. You know, it is not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, yet without sin. The problem is when we yield to that temptation. And what Jesus is telling us to pray here is not that we should not be tempted. It's that we shouldn't be drawn in to the sin that is related to that temptation. Does that make sense? I had one uh, a person say once, um, a fairly well-known uh, preacher, um, he openly admitted, he said, do you know, I find women attractive, he said. <laughs> and it's not a sin. You know, God made women Attractive, you know? <laughs> they were meant to be, uh, you know, attractive companions for men. And he said, that's not the problem. The problem is, what do I do about that when I see an attractive girl? What goes through my mind? What actions do I take? He said, I should never pray, you know, God, make, make women unattractive to me. 
Because <laughs> what's going to happen? Is he going to wake up the next thing? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> a bit ugly. Right? That's not God's plan or purpose, right? What he should pray is, you know, don't lead me into the sin because I'm thinking wrong thoughts as a result of me finding women attractive. Yeah? You get the point, I think. So don't lead us into temptation and sin. But deliver us from evil. Now this is uh, a valid prayer because actually we need protection, don't we, from the evil one. We're told in the Bible that Satan prowls around uh, like a lion, just waiting to devour uh, disciples. So we need to pray for his divine uh, protection against those things. And in the world we live in today, how easy it is to get drawn in to things that are not right. Deliver us from evil. And then it goes on, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Depending on which version of the Lord's Prayer you read. So, a miraculous prayer. A call to believe in the miraculous, uh, a call to be bold. But elsewhere, Jesus also says that prayer requires faith. Yeah? If we are engaging in miraculous stuff, if we're asking for miracles to happen, we have to have faith. And how do we get that? So in James 5, 15, it says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So we should be bold and confident in our prayers. We should say them with huge amounts of faith. We should make positive declarations. Jonathan and I were discussing just at the start um, about why is it that sometimes God doesn't seem to answer prayer? You know, if we pray in absolute faith... Why is it that God doesn't respond? Because he tells us to. He says, you know, if prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Are there certain prayers that God won't answer? Sometimes no is an answer. There's always an answer, but sometimes no. Yeah? Yep, so if there's unforgiven sin, absolutely. That was the condition um, in, in, the, in the bit we said before. So I think there are some prayers that God will not answer yes to. So, for example, if we prayed for things that were completely against the will of God, that were completely anti to his nature, he wouldn't do that because God cannot be a liar, God cannot um, go against his, uh, his perfect way. So, an obvious example, you know, if we prayed that Jesus would never return again, it would, that's a prayer that God would not answer, because he's promised that he will return again. 
I think there's probably more trivial examples of things. So if I pray that Newcastle United would win their next match, that's not a prayer. Sorry? No, Toke. That's an impossible one. <laughs> but, but you see, the point is, there might be whoever they're playing next. I can't remember who it is. Sorry? Man City. Man City. I knew it was... Uh... <laughs> so maybe he will answer it, but... But the point is, there'll be an equal number of Man City supporters that may well be praying for Man City to win. It's an impossible prayer because they both can't win, according to, um, you know, sorry? Yeah, but that's not both winning, is it? That's a lose-lose situation. <laughs> so, you know, there are some trivial things, and, and so this kind of emphasizes the point of, you know, when we pray... Think about what you're praying, because you're asking for a miracle. You're asking for God's will to be done. Don't trivialize it. This is holy God that we're speaking to. But yet, there's people who are suffering. There are people who are sick. And we might pray earnestly for them. I, I bear testimony to this myself. My, my dad had leukemia, um, And he actually died when he was younger than I am now. And we prayed fervently that God would heal him. But he didn't. Why? Why would he take a man really in the prime of his life? But you see, we don't see God's bigger picture, do we? We don't see the fact that actually when his kingdom comes, I have every confidence that my father is going to be part of that kingdom. Because he died in a, in a faith and a deep knowledge of his saviour, Jesus. So for him, uh, actually, the prayer was answered in a very miraculous and wonderful way. Because had he been healed of his leukemia, he would have still had to die unless Jesus returned again. I wonder what Lazarus thought when Jesus raised him. It's like, oh, I've got to go through all that again. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> but you get my point, yeah? This, this life that we live now is just so temporary, and it's so broken, and it's so exposed to evil, that actually our prayer should be that of eternity, seeing uh, God's eternal kingdom come. Wipe away all the tears wipe away all the sorrow. So let's pray when we do, expecting miraculous things, but let's pray understanding God's eternal plans and purpose. Now one final thing, and I'm not sure, and you can criticize me on this uh, um, kind of uh, whether this is right or not, But when we look about prayer requiring faith and and boldness, what does that say about the nature in which we pray? Because, you know, we're told to pray to Father God in the name of Jesus through the power of the Spirit, yeah? And a lot of people, I find, use that phrase in the name of Jesus, almost as a 
right? I'm kind of rubber stamping this. This is going to happen now, isn't it, right? So when you pray and say, right, in the name of Jesus, I, I pray this, right? I claim this in the name of Jesus. That's a dangerous thing to claim, isn't it, actually? Because, you know, how, how do we know that actually that is completely aligned with, with God's will? We have to be humble in, in our approach. But I think we're also told to be bold in our prayers, and I think that words and the way we say words are kind of really important. You know, words brought the whole of creation into being. Yes? God just spoke and words and, and creation came into being. Words can be very encouraging and words can be very discouraging as well. Yeah? If I'd say to somebody, you're stupid, that really hurts, doesn't it? That is really discouraging. And, uh, um, you know, it's a very negative thing. But if I say, do you know what? You are so great, Jane. I'm just blown away by the things you do, your servant-heartedness, right? your faithfulness. Does that not make you feel better? Yeah. And some psychologists have done... Um, uh, some studies on this, and uh, they say the way we speak to, to people directly affects not only the way they feel, but the way they act, right? So if I say to a young child, don't spill that as they're carrying a glass of water, it immediately puts in their mind the fact that they're going to spill that, yep? But if you just say, carry that very carefully, will you? It's just a slight variation on the words, but a completely different way of looking at it. So, um, you know, whether this is right or wrong, I think faith in prayer is a lot about the way we say things, the kind of language we use, and the assurance that we have of God's faithfulness. If we enter a prayer saying, oh God, would you heal that such and such a person, you know, not really believing it, I don't think God necessarily answers uh, 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 prayers like that. Because are we honestly looking at the will of God? But if we fervently you know, cry out to God passionately about what we want him to do, almost like nagging like that uh, person did, I want that loaf of bread because uh, you know, somebody, a visitor has come to be with me, right? God will respond. I don't know whether that's wholly scriptural or not, but I do think that, uh, you know, the way we speak to God, the boldness that we approach him with, daring to call him dad, I think has something to do with it. So, to summarize, before we sing again and have a time of prayer. For me, prayer is about knowing God. Daring to call him dad. Prayer is about acting out God's will. It's about knowing God's will and praying in accord with that. And prayer is about changing the natural order of things. It's about seeing the miraculous come into being. So, when we pray, do we expect the world to be changed? Do we expect miracles to happen? Because prayer is a miraculous thing. We should expect it.